Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators hey, finding everybody. solutions. It's Joe. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. almost a show one. views of the host are his own and should not now, be used as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. shows that I've reported to this point, I'm sure that there has to be at least one success story. Maybe two. Hopefully more than two. What I want to do for my 100th show is to highlight some of these success stories that have come from this podcast. That could be somebody who was a past guest who wants to highlight a deal that came from being on the show or potentially a listener or viewer who has heard of a company decided to go and invest or heard of something and that turned into some type of business transaction. Something along those lines, I want to highlight those stories. Or if you want to just call in and wish me some some well wishes, or you want to call in and say that you want more of a specific type of show, or you just want to say congratulations for reaching 100 episodes, and still doing this, you can also do that. I'm going to listen to this. I'll probably re-record it, but if not, you will hear all of this for the next few episodes. And if you get sick of it, it's roughly two minutes long, so you can just skip through it. All right. Thanks, y'all. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Michael Ducker, Senior Vice President, Head of Hydrogen Infrastructure at Mitsubishi Power Americas. Now, I know Mitsubishi (laughs) for two things, cars and flash steam turbines. But as I'm sure you have guessed by now, there are so much there is so much more to this great company. Today we are talking about hydrogen, the Aces Delta Hydrogen Hub, and the role of a company like Mitsubishi in this development. So, Michael, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and yeah, a quick introduction a and, to, and to Mitsubishi Power America. Uh, so, yes, I've been with Mitsubishi Power here for a uh, little over a decade here right now uh, in various roles at the company. And most recently here, have the honor of leading our efforts in uh, the hydrogen infrastructure business. And so I know we'll be talking a bit more about that here today. Uh, Before that, I was with the uh, U.S. Department of Energy and uh, had the uh, opportunity to work with some of the smartest folks here in in the nation and and working in in Washington, D.C. And uh, hail from uh, alum from Penn State University. And uh, again, excited to uh, talk a little bit more here about uh, what we're doing here with Mitsubishi. And so Mitsubishi Power Americas uh, is a power solutions brand of Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. And uh, really offering power generation, energy storage, and digital solutions uh, for our customers uh, to help support them to affordably and reliably combat climate change. And particularly, you know, really here at the forefront right now 
uh, of green hydrogen and uh, uh, you know, doing some very exciting things. And we'll be talking, like I said, about some of the projects uh, we're working on here today. Thank you for that introduction, and I'm glad to have you on the show. Now, when it comes to big-scale ideas, as you're pointing out, these large-scale, low-carbon power solutions, Mm -hmm. a lot of talk right now is around hydrogen hubs, carbon hubs, just like, I guess, the word hub keeps coming up. And I, for one, I, I will gladly admit... I don't actually mm-hmm. know what we're talking about when we're talking about this this hub idea. So I want to start off really simply. Can you explain sure. and, to us? You know, when you really look at the, the hydrogen hubs, hub you know, first of all, what are we trying to solve for? And you know, really macro big picture is a uh, emphasis on uh, zero carbon, high reliability, low cost, and and that's what we're looking at across the energy sector. This isn't necessarily just the power generation uh, side of the picture. It's really across industries. So as we're working further and for, further to get towards a zero carbon uh, economy, how is, you know, again, the best way to get there reliably and affordably? And this is where hydrogen is seen in playing a, a, a larger and larger role. Now, today, a lot of the discussions here from the Department of Energy and across the industry, as you mentioned, is this idea of hydrogen hubs. So, yes, what is a hydrogen hub? Really, in its essence, it's bringing together a combination of uh, uh, economies of scale of supply, uh, demand uh, of hydrogen really within one area. Uh, and then how do we look at um, uh, reliably storing that hydrogen and then starting to deliver that hydrogen to other sectors and other areas uh, across the U.S.? And so when we think about a hub, again, really think about large-scale production and use within a region. As we get that larger-scale uh, uh, utilization installed capacity, that's where we start seeing the opportunities for costs to come down over time. And as costs continue to come down over time, this is where we have that opportunity to also look to interconnect these hubs. And as we're interconnecting, we're also able to pick up opportunities uh, across the board to further help decarbonize um, other sectors, other industries that maybe aren't necessarily located adjacent to a large demand center or large production center. So that's really kind of the crux of what we're talking about here. Uh, when we think about the the hydrogen hubs, and in fact, we're working on one right now, and we've already reached um, uh, financial close for that project under construction. It's our ACES Delta hydrogen hub uh, that's helping support the Western United States in its decarbonization efforts. That makes a lot of sense. I understand better what the idea of hubs are and that larger scale idea of the hydrogen hub. And I really like the way you you pointed it out. And uh, the if I wrote these down right, you're talking about zero to low carbon, high reliability, large scale, lower costs, and then mm-hmm. being able to apply this to larger kind of transport models of have everything in one spot and then go out from there and build out. So it makes a lot of sense. Now, I think thinking about this hypothetically as we're talking about this hubs and spokes, kind of like a wheel there, I guess there would be multiple wheels all across the country building out this capacity and then connecting it all through pipelines and transport infrastructure. And you pointed out the project that y'all are working on and that you have 
in construction phase now, the ACES Delta project. Mm-hmm. I want to use that as an example. Now, we, we understand what a hydrogen hub is. What does it actually take to build out a hydrogen hub? Sure. And so, you know, I guess I'll probably answer this a little bit uniquely here um, to, out of the start is what does it take? It takes a lot of collaboration. And look, right now in this industry, as we're looking at building out this hydrogen network, uh, there is no one player, there is no one company, there is no one industry that uh, effectively dominates or, or, or really um, you know, has the position here to support the type of build out we're talking about that's going to occur over the next several decades. So out of the gate, what does it take to build a hydrogen hub? It takes an immense amount of collaboration with a diverse set of stakeholders and partners to really bring that to fruition. And so, for example, when we look at the ACES Delta project, um, what that brought together here in, the, in this first phase uh, was ourselves, Mitsubishi Power, along with our partners, Magnum Development, who had the site that happened to be adjacent to the Intermountain Power Agency, who set a target of uh, running on a blend of clean hydrogen, 30% green hydrogen in 2025, um, and 70% natural gas, and no later than 2045 would be switching to operate their, their power plant on running on 100% green hydrogen. And so really, you know, coming together here in a partnership with the Intermountain Power Agency uh, and our teams was a first part of this. And then as we continue to expand and look at that, that project, really bringing in a multitude of other stakeholders, of course, our contractors on the uh, surface and subsurface side. Um, on this project, this involved the U.S. Department of Energy for a um, loan guarantee. And this is their first loan from the renewable um, uh, energy side of the department that's been made in over a decade. And so you're bringing the uh, DUE on board here with that project and really pulling this together as uh, ultimately a long duration energy storage project that's supporting this first phase of the ACES Delta Hydrogen Hub. Now that we have that first phase that's under construction moving forward, this is where we can start to build out more demand, more production. We're seeing opportunities in the transportation sector. We're seeing opportunities with heavy industrial customers who are now interested in uh, potentially co-locating demand at that site because now that we got scale and we've got lower cost, um, that attracts and, again, incentivizes other industries to take advantage of those lower costs um, commodity in this case. And it kind of is your example of success begets success uh, in that as we keep then building out more and more production, more and more storage, our costs continue to drive down, and that also then supports more demand. With more demand, it's, it, it entices more production, and the cycle continues there, at least in this case in, in ACES Delta. That that totally makes sense, the way that you are looking at the building out, and, and I like that you started with the idea of collaboration because ultimately, I, I just posted this week on LinkedIn the idea of, resources. And ultimately, mm-hmm. if you have a resource, that's great. But you also need a way to transport that resource. You need a buyer of that resource. And and then there are subsequent steps down the line from your upstream resource and selling it down to your downstream of who's the end consumer that's ultimately benefiting from this. So it's definitely collaboration and building it all together. Absolutely. You know, one of the, I think one of the coolest things right now of my job and what I've seen so far in the industry is just 
the immense amount of collaboration that's happening across sectors. I mean, we've got uh, entities that are, you know, that are forming JVs and forming, um, you know, regional hub type of partnerships that historically have never talked together in the past. And, and then, you know, this is really showing how if we want to tackle climate change, if we're looking to reduce carbon emissions, it can't be just viewed through the silo of power generation. It can't be viewed just through the silo of transportation. It requires all these different industries to come together. And quite frankly, but until hydrogen has really started to gain prominence and interest, a lot of these industries haven't talked together historically. But yet today, and really I can say in the past three years in my role of leading our hydrogen efforts, we continue to talk with a multitude of stakeholders outside of the power sector. Again, we're talking with um, you know, some of the oil majors. We're talking with folks from the industrial gas side. We're talking with the transportation sector, uh, ammonia. And we think about agriculture and, and working with, with these industries, even down to steel. All these different types of companies are talking together right now and looking at how do we get a project? How do we get a hub moving forward? And it's really exciting to see that type of collaboration across sectors that, again, historically really hasn't been there uh, to date. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds very exciting. Now, when we talk about ACES Delta, I guess, what are the different parts that go into building out ACES Delta? And I also want to get into, you said you're in construction. What exactly, I guess, how far along are you in construction and kind of what are those parts that are being built into this project? Yeah, so what, what makes this project, uh, I'll say, unique right now and exciting is it, it is the world's first and largest project to have hit financial close and, and moved into construction uh, for green hydrogen. And what we're looking at for this is uh, 220 megawatts of electrolyzers that is producing about 100 metric tons per day uh, of hydrogen. Uh, and we'll be storing that hydrogen then in two massive salt caverns um, that have the equivalent of about 9 million barrels equivalent of, of storage capacity uh, for each of those caverns. Now, or for, excuse me, total. Now, just to put some of that into perspective, what does that mean? You know, at the end of 2021, the entire global capacity, installed capacity of electrolyzers was about 280 megawatts. So this one project alone uh, nearly doubles worldwide capacity uh, for electrolyzers and really shows the takeoff point for green hydrogen and the production of hydrogen uh, at large scale via electrolysis. When we then shift and look at hydrogen storage, uh, globally right now, there's a little over 13 million barrels equivalent of hydrogen storage capacity uh, across the globe. And again, this project alone will be 9 million barrels equivalent. So almost to nearly doubling worldwide capacity and will be the world's single largest storage site for hydrogen. So that just really kind of brings together and shows the, the scale and magnitude and why that makes this project unique today and, and really is the, 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 the first project at scale moving forward. But, you know, certainly the exciting news for the industry is uh, we're hearing and even ourselves, too, we're developing projects that um, will make this project look small in the future. But when we think about the in the grand scheme of things of where the industry is at today, this is really that first signal of, of, of um, the large scale uh, commercial use of green hydrogen really come to fruition and uh, no longer just uh, being discussed. Yeah, I like the the aspect here if you're looking at this from a numbers standpoint or a quantitative standpoint you can see you are starting to get kind of on the exponential growth portion of that of that growth curve 
because right now that's exactly right yeah yeah that's that in itself is just so exciting and, and we really liken it back and, and a lot of folks like to draw correlations to the renewables industry you'll go back to the early 2000s uh when we were looking at the solar industry and um you know that's where we saw the takeoff point and now look at the solar industry today same on wind industry so we really believe we're at that inflection point right now and just as you said where we start to see that exponential growth take off uh, that's what makes us exciting and and the project and the industry as a whole yep absolutely now you did mention green hydrogen so green hydrogen being all of that hydrogen produced from renewable energy where is this renewable energy going to be coming from for aces delta yeah, so the way our project's set up is we're really providing energy conversion and storage services for our ultimate off-taker, here being the Intermountain Power Agency. You know, one of the unique things about this project is if you, if you step back and look at the application of green hydrogen here, <clears throat> really what this is being used for is, is a giant battery. And it's just a different application than what we're used to seeing for lithium-ion batteries. So again, just to put some things into perspective, most people in the industry are familiar with uh, on the power sector, this idea of the duck curve. And, and if you don't know what the duck curve is, it's this idea that in the middle of the day, wind is, or excuse me, um, renewables are overproducing, particu- particularly solar, uh, such that we have uh, an oversupply of energy. And this is where batteries can play a role to help absorb some of that overproduction. And then late in the evening, as the sun's coming down, folks are coming back from work, we have an undersupply of energy. And this is where really batteries or energy storage plays an important role. And going forward, that's still going to be the case. And as we add more and more renewables, we need to solve for that issue. What's a little more unique here today, though, is we're no longer just concerned about that intradaily energy imbalance. We're now seeing the need for seasonal storage and really uh, imbalances across months. And so just going back to try to put things in perspective, the Western United States, on average, was curtailing over 300 gigawatt hours per month of renewable energy in the winter and spring months. Yet we saw just a few years ago in the summertime frame, uh, the first rolling blackouts in over two decades because the Western US was short on energy. So at roughly a 30% installed capacity of renewables, we're seeing this dynamic take place now where certain seasons of the year we're way over producing energy and certain seasons of the year we're way under producing renewable energy. And that's where hydrogen comes in. That's where our project particularly comes in is how do we take that excess production of renewables in the winter and spring months and work to start shifting that towards the periods of the year where we typically see deficits, again, typically being that summer and fall. And that's where this can come into play. And so when we look at our project, for instance, each caver can store roughly about 150 gigawatt hours of uh, renewable energy, what otherwise would be curtailed energy. And so that's equivalent to really the Western United States average monthly uh, curtailment. So that's really the first phase of this project, or as we see the application, is supporting this energy imbalance that we're seeing that is now across seasons, no longer just within a day. That's a very interesting point, and I appreciate that you brought kind of the barrel the BOE equivalent into gigawatt hour equivalent. Mm -hmm. And basically each cavern you have there is storing one month of energy or or thereabouts is what it sounds like. 
Yeah, and again, I mean, just to still put further perspective on just the, the scale and magnitude of this. So the entire United States right now for lithium-ion batteries is just over about three gigawatt hours. And so with um, our project between the two caverns would store about 300 gigawatt hours. So we're nearly 100-fold larger than the entire U.S. installed base of lithium-ion batteries. And that's at this one site in you know, two caverns that are deep underground where all you really see above ground is a wellhead. And that's one of the great aspects, too, of hydrogen and particularly hydrogen storage is we're not talking about um, you know, thousands and thousands of acres worth of um, above ground infrastructure. Really, at the end of the day, it's, it's a wellhead that sits on a tiny little parcel here, uh, in this case, in, in, in Delta, Utah. Yeah, I I always love the pointing out the opportunities for subsurface utilization, whether it is for energy storage or or carbon sequestration. Because really, as as a geologist, I really do believe that the answers are all in the subsurface. That is where we're going to find our solutions. But I am a little biased on that. I, I, well, I can tell you having uh, now, now had the opportunities to see some more of the subsurface. Again, most of my career on the power generation side, more on the surface uh, aspects, as I've had the opportunity to learn and really get ingrained here on the subsurface and geological aspects and storing in salt caverns. Uh, heck, just being up on top of the drill rig and seeing you know the type of work that uh, the drillers do uh, and just the accuracy. I mean, we're talking nearly a mile under the earth and you know, the point you're trying to hit is within a few inches. I mean, that's just phenomenal, the, the way the technology or the industry is at. And that's, again, really just the construction side of it. And as you point out, this idea of just the amount of um, uh, storage capacity, what we can really do subsurface-wise in a de-risk manner is, is truly phenomenal. It's something that going forward is a really fundamental part of our plan as we look to uh, pursue further hydrogen hubs, not just in, in Delta, Utah, but across the U.S., Yep. Yep. Now I do have, have one kind of question that's floating around in my mind right now. You have three, roughly 300 gigawatt hours of, of mm-hmm. storage capacity right now there at Delta. It sounds like those are specifically in the salt caverns and being in Texas, I am more akin to the Gulf coast and the, mm-hmm. the Gulf coast salt province. Whereas I'm not as familiar with salt caverns kind of lining up along the Rocky Mountains. So I guess that's a long way to ask, is there any room for growth at the ACES Delta hydrogen hub? And what about the rest of the Western U.S. with, with building out hydrogen hubs? Yeah, so this is a unique formation in that in it, we, uh, geologists call it it's a domal uh, quality style formation. Uh, and I can't go through all the details, but as I understand, it is a bedded salt that basically kind of, um, you know, through the years kind of formed on itself and created this kind of domal formation, just like you see, as you said, in the, in the Gulf Coast. Uh, most of the formations, as, as you definitely are aware, but maybe your listeners aren't, uh, are, are bedded salts. And so when we say bedded salts, these are typically much shallower, uh, also much thinner formations. So, you know, we think about Delta, Utah. Uh, we could have roughly a 1,500-foot-tall cavern, you know, the size of like the Empire State Building, uh, that's holding the hydrogen. We're able to get these large volumes of, of hydrogen storage. In other parts of the U.S. or even the West, uh, we don't have that same luxury, but for really in the, in, in the Gulf Coast. Now, 
you know, you asked, what does this mean for the West and, and particularly what's our site capability? You know, we said we can do up to a hundred caverns of the size and magnitude we've got uh, for this first phase of the project. When we run our own analysis for the Western United States and looked at how can the Western United States achieve zero carbon across all energy sectors, uh, we ran that type of assessment, looked at how much hydrogen would be needed along with renewable energy and batteries and, and, and the whole uh, confluence of technologies that would be needed to cost effectively and reliably get that goal. And the great news is when we ran that type of assessment, uh, we saw that well less than 100 caverns would be needed to achieve that goal for the entire Western United States. So in essence, this site in Delta, Utah, uh, really can be the strategic storage reserves for the Western U.S. and help meet its goals uh, and really act as that you know key central hub from a production storage piece. Now, as we go across the U.S., Gulf Coast clearly will play a huge role. Um, when we start talking, though, Mid-Atlantic, Midwest, Northeast, this is where you know we are exploring opportunities in bedded salts and uh, even you know some other geological formations where we can cost-effectively store uh, hydrogen and, of course, most importantly, safely and reliably too. Uh, but that helps give some perspective on uh, what we've assessed here for for the Western U.S. Yes, that definitely helps with the perspective and thinking kind of out that long term and and growth potential and and really chasing down that net zero target. How do we actually do that? So it's very yeah. exciting to hear the opportunities there. One one other question kind of sticking in this in this realm is the idea of the electrolyzers from mm-hmm. past guests and and other conversations I've had my basically what what we've talked about here you've got 220 megawatts of electrolyzers those are only going to be running if if I'm correct on the curtailed energy mm-hmm. meaning that the the best case scenario these electrolyzers are producing hydrogen anywhere from 20 to 50% of the time mm-hmm. now from my understanding is that the electrolyzers are one of the more expensive pieces of equipment and ideally to get the the value from them you would want to be running them kind of high capacity 90 to 100 Mm percent of the time so how i guess i guess that's a long way setting up the question to to ask is to me, this seems like a an expensive way to store energy, but obviously it must not be since you're you're moving forward with this project. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. So you know we get this question a lot, and, and it's a great question to ask. And 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 kind of as you're almost already getting there, and maybe realizing in the question, there's a difference between uh, hydrogen as a storage medium and hydrogen as a fuel. In this application, we're looking at hydrogen supporting as an energy storage medium. More importantly, what we need to look at is not just the individual asset. You know, everyone gets hyper focused on what's a dollar per kg cost of that electrolyzer, and it's completely missing the mark. Because when we look at uh, a power system, we look at it as a system. And what do grid operators do? What do utilities do? They're trying to get the lowest cost, highest reliability across their entire system. And now we have the the, the new added um, uh, boundary condition, which is how do you also get zero carbon? So utility planners um, are are trying to solve for this. And when you step back and look from a system perspective of what is my best way to get zero carbon, high reliability, low cost, and what technologies and what do I have at my disposal to help achieve that, we've run that analysis of looking at 
let's fast forward to 2050. We've got a zero carbon grid, all renewables based, uh, particularly in the West, where that's what we do expect to see is is a, is a heavy reliance on renewables. Um, what if all we have was lithium ion batteries to help solve the intermittency issue? And the costs grow exponentially. You actually cannot get to zero carbon because that last mile, especially the last 10, 20 percent of, of carbon emission reductions, you just can't ever get there. You can't put enough batteries on the system to help solve for that constraint. As soon as we introduce hydrogen, though, what do we get? Not only are we able to achieve that zero carbon target, but we do so at a more than 20 percent cost reduction compared to if all we had available was renewables and batteries. And so, you know, really trying to push listeners and, and people looking at the industry is uh, away from this idea of let's look at an individual asset and tell me what the dollar per kilogram number is. We really need to be looking holistically at what are the system costs and what is the best way to solve for the system. And by the way, that's just with our blinders on with power industry. Now, all of a sudden, if you start saying, how do I get to zero carbon across multiple industries, you know, again, across heavy industrial costs, agriculture, across transportation, now you really open the lens to what's the most cost effective way to get there. And hydrogen will only play an even more important role in that type of dynamic. Now, ultimately getting uh, you know, states and regions to uh, solve their energy planning uh, and, and, and decarbonization efforts to take into account everything I just talked about is certainly a, a challenge in and of itself. But nevertheless, at least from the power sector, we can already see those those tangible benefits when we think about it from from the system lens. Yeah, that's a really good point that you make there, thinking through not only the the decarbonization of power, but then you do have that intrinsic built-in dual purpose for the hydrogen of immediately being able to go into decarbonizing any type of transportation, heavy industry. And you don't really have that when you're looking at things like solar or wind or focus just on the electricity aspect, because ultimately you do need to turn that into something that can transport. That's right. I mean, when you look at a hydrogen molecule, it has a lot of uses. And if you have the interconnectivity, if you have that uh, available um, uh, capacity, really it can serve multiple functions and becomes kind of a really from the, the highest level view of what's my highest emitting, you know, carbon uh, entity, maybe at that, that point in time. And I want to use that hydrogen molecule to go towards that industry. And you have a lot of optionality then. Um, and so the more we build out uh, infrastructure that supports that, it preserves that optionality to really, you know, solve uh, these very complex systems in the most efficient way possible. I mean, that's really the, the, the longest term and biggest view, but it's absolutely achievable. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think there's, in in some regards, there is also a an aspect, something that, that we've said or colleagues say in the geothermal industry that isn't just geothermal, but it's really from a utilities perspective, one thing that they should be asking is not, as you point out, the the cheapest price per kilogram for hydrogen or the cheapest price for electricity, they should be saying and asking the question, what is the cheapest way to remove the next gigaton of carbon from mm-hmm. our system? You're absolutely right. And, and do so reliably and, and as you said, cheaply or affordably. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, I, I, I realize we've been talking about hydrogen all this time, and, and I'm definitely excited for hydrogen hubs now and the opportunity that they offer not only to drive down decarbonization 
for electricity, but also kind of everything else we've just laid out. But I, I, I don't want to miss this point because we actually haven't really talked about it. How and why is Mitsubishi involved in this project specifically and mm-hmm. building out a hydrogen hub? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. Again, one one we we also get a lot is is, is how did you find your way into um, in, into this this part? You know, usually Mitsubishi is seen as an equipment provider and, and and energy solutions provider. So so how do we find our way into this? And you know, it really goes back to ultimately doing everything we can to support our customer. In this case, our customer was the Intermountain Power Agency. So the Intermountain Power Agency went forward looking at um, uh, back in you know before 2019, looking at uh, uh, a request for proposal for gas turbines that could run on hydrogen. And Mitsubishi has that product, and we supported bidding opportunity to IPA to provide our turbines to support their project, the IPP Renewed, that we've talked about today. As we were supporting that project, though, we said – if IPA is committing to running on hydrogen, where are they going to get the hydrogen from? You know, there is no market. They, they, you know, nothing exists today. And we knew actually about that site uh, next door and, and, again, our partners, Magnum Development. Uh, and so rather than just sitting back and saying, you know, here's our turbine and, and good luck finding the hydrogen, we proactively went on and said, we're going to help our customer. We're going to work to um, really build this industry. And so we invested a significant amount of capital uh, in the the site next door and working with our partners, Magnum, and set forward to actually develop the hydrogen hub. And by the way, go back to 2019, nobody was talking about hydrogen hubs. Nobody was talking about, you know, like we do today as, a, as if hydrogen is a foregone conclusion. We actually had people telling us that we were throwing our money away. It was a science project. What are you doing? You know, this idea of hydrogen economy, uh, again, you're just throwing your money away. It's, it's complete waste. But we saw the signals. We understood where the market was was moving and again, we weren't going to just sit back and, and have our customer figure it out for themselves. We wanted to be an active participant and, and help them uh, really deliver what they ultimately need in the end, which is uh, low cost, high reliability, zero carbon, um, in this case, uh, a solution. And so with that investment and all that work and all of our feed studies and, and learning the market well before the market kind of unfolded, we saw that we created a lot of value and we built up a team. We built up a lot of acumen. We built up. Uh, a lot of understanding of what it takes to get a project of this scale and magnitude to the finish line. And we really see the industry at the takeoff point. So again, we have to step back and say, do we just want to watch this industry take off and sit on the sidelines and wait for RFPs to come out and wait for our customers to figure it out? Or do we more proactively engage in the market, more proactively actually uh, guide the market? And in doing so, we're also understanding what types of products, what types of solutions, how do you know how are we going to solve for the ultimate end goal that the market's looking at in this nascent stage of the industry? And so that's where we really made that commitment: is that we're uh, not only supporting this project, multiple hubs across the U.S. Uh, at the end of the day, of course, we're looking at opportunities to learn what are the new products and solutions, whether it's new electrolyzers from alkaline to PEM to anion exchange membranes. Maybe it's pyrolysis, and we're seeing a lot of activity interests there to even autothermal reformers and way we can you know, capture CO2 through traditional forms of, of producing hydrogen. But all of this requires a more active participation rather than just sitting on the sidelines. And that's what we did, and that's how we found our, our way into our role here right now and, um, and, and what we're doing in the hydrogen industry. What is going on here? Sorry, my phone decided to start talking. 
No worries. No worries. Okay. Luckily, I think it was at the end there, so yeah. sure can cut that out. Yeah. Well, I guess that really sums it up well. And so I appreciate that, that explaining how Mitsubishi ended up in this, in this space and really helping build out the, the hydrogen hub and really building out kind of the entire infrastructure business model, seeing what it takes to really make a hydrogen economy a thing, if you will. I think that that is a a good point and a good spot to to switch over into my final questions. These are the questions okay. that I ask all of my guests. So that first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Favorite book? Um, so I have to go back a little bit here. Uh, one, and, and uh, try to remember, it, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's called Forces for Good. And what the book's basically about is how to lead in a uh, nonprofit uh, environment. And it's, it's one that I'd read a long time ago. But, but what I can say in reading that book is if you can learn how to motivate and lead in an environment where people aren't paid any money, right, they're volunteers, how do you inspire, how do you promote, uh, how do you apply a lot of that same uh, approach to leadership in now the corporate world where people, at least now you've got the added benefit of, uh, uh, if you can inspire them and motivate them and also give them a, a paycheck, uh, you can get a lot uh, of, uh, of really exciting um, you know, motivations and, and work. And so that's really kind of I turned a lot of what I've learned in that book and my experiences in my younger years around philanthropic work to how do I lead today within a company and in a business unit and, and really work to inspire folks to do more than just collect that paycheck. Um, you know, we are doing some really, really exciting stuff around clean energy um, really solving some of the biggest challenges in the world. And uh, it, is, uh, it is, in my mind, more than just collecting a paycheck at the end of the day. And that book uh, kind of helps understand how how to motivate folks uh, in that type of environment. Yeah, and I, I think definitely today, as we talk about the, I guess, uh, the new workforce coming in and being a, a purpose-driven workforce, mm-hmm. I think that there is definitely application there that most of us just aren't aren't just looking for a paycheck and especially if we're working in the energy transition space there is this almost intrinsic value of what we're doing and we want to see that that uh input and that value add not just for ourselves but kind of for society so this is definitely a, a great recommendation and i'm excited to add it to my list there we go the next question is, when will we be net zero as a society? So, you know, I think when we look at targets, you know, there is a lot of emphasis around 2050. And I think generally speaking, we see uh, corporations and governments trying to expedite that further, recognizing, though, this is a multi-decade challenge. Um, I do think that no later than 2050 uh, we have that opportunity and uh, as a society as a whole. Uh, and I think the great news is we see a lot of countries and certainly a lot of regions that I expect are going to hit that uh, a lot quicker than, than 2050. So uh, a short follow-up on there. Do you think, and, and I think a lot of people focus on that 2050, but the way that you phrased it was was different than most. And I'm curious, do you think that the the establishment of saying 2050 
will ultimately make us get there? Or do you think that it is more the the human ingenuity and the simple fact that we are having so much technological progress right now in the energy transition space? No, I, I think it's the, the, honestly, it is the latter. And I think, again, I expect actually to see the timeline move up a bit, but as with anything, you can throw all the money and, and, and all the resources and everything at it. Um, but th- this is a um, generational challenge and it's not going to happen with a flick of the switch. And a lot has to be done in this decade in the 2020s. Uh, and certainly as we move into the 2030s, a lot has to happen in the next few decades. But also we do see a lot happening in tech- technology innovations, uh, around digital innovations. Uh, and then really just comes back to kind of what you said. It's, it's the, the, the human ingenuity and the human um, uh, focus on this is a challenge that we want to solve. And we're not talking like we were two, three decades ago. I believe we've committed to it. Uh, and there's a lot of factors that I believe drive that, um, do drive that forward. I like it. Well, the last question is now you actually get to ask me a question. All right. So well, you, you said geologist by, geologist by training. And so I, I always love geeking out with, with our geologists and, 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 and you know, cavern engineers and everybody else. So uh, any cool fact or anything you can throw out for, for me and, and your listeners um, as we think about the subsurface and anything that comes to mind. There, there are a lot of a lot of different things that come to mind, but I think that I think the most important thing, or the 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 quickest answer, is that I really, and I've already said it, I really do think the subsurface is the answer because mm-hmm. we keep finding these these cool ways to use it. As you're pointing out, the idea of of just storing hydrogen, hydrogen being this so small little tiny particle that is so difficult to to i guess hold on to mm-hmm. and and now we're able to use the subsurface in its more or less natural state to store hydrogen and and finding different ways to store hydrogen in the subsurface it's it's fascinating to me and then when we talk about kind of thermal energy storage. That is another way where we can use the subsurface to store energy and basically just pump the energy down and then reproduce it later. It's more or less straightforward. Mm-hmm. There's a, There are caveats and, and difficulties or challenges to overcome as there are with anything, but I think that that's another way that we're starting to see people find ways to use the subsurface in a new fascinating way and then of course of course ccs is going to be if we want to get to lower carbon than we have today in the atmosphere we have to remove it and and i think the the only logical place to store that carbon is going to be in the subsurface so i there are all these different fascinating ways to store it you can look at companies like CarbFix and what they're doing to convert it in basalt and then just the whole idea of saline aquifer storage i i think if if anybody wants to nerd out a little bit just pick any topic and then put underground after it 
or subsurface after it, and you will find some fascinating stuff. That's great. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think this, this decade in particular, um, uh, geological engineering and, and, and studies subsurface and opportunities as we think about clean energy and, and um, you know, really achieving our climate change and decarbonization goals, I think there's a lot of untapped potential there, too. And, and I think it's exciting for um, those that, that hail from this field and for me that, that I'll say come from the surface side and mechanical engineering by, by training. Uh, I love every opportunity I have to learn more about the subsurface and, and what we can do here to, to uh, you know, tap into there and, and better meet our, our environmental targets. So very exciting time. Yep, absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? No, just, uh, you know, appreciate the opportunity. And again, look, I think as a whole, this is just a really incredibly exciting time uh, for anybody across the energy industry. And again, whether we're talking subsurface, surface, uh, whether we're talking in uh, agriculture or power generation, um, there's a lot of opportunity here. And, and I think it's exciting to see how these different industries are coming together. And uh, I like to say hydrogen is the molecule that unites. And, uh, you know, that's what we've seen to date. And I think it's exciting to see the next few years uh, how that continues to unfold. So I appreciate the opportunity today to talk on the show. Uh, you know, happy any additional follow-ups here and, and look forward to uh, uh, talking again here maybe uh, sometime in the future. All right. Michael, thank you again. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link for that is in the show notes. If you go and fill that out, we can send you some stickers. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.